Welcome to this week's episode of Ronan Talks Languages. This week, I talked to Joss, who is a lecturer in Dublin City University. Joss is the chair of the Masters in Translation Studies and the Masters in Translation Technology. In this episode, we discuss everything to do with the translation industry, how to get started, and advice for the future. Keep listening to find out more. Good morning, Joss. Good morning, Ron, and thanks very much for having me along. I just want to have a quick chat about, about your role in DCU, what you studied in college, job of a translator, life of a translator, that kind of thing. Could you just start off by telling me what you're doing in DCU? I am a lecturer and researcher. Our, our role tends to involve a, a mix of, of teaching, of doing research, and of engagement with sort of society in the university. So the teaching part... I teach about multimedia, audiovisual translation, computer-assisted translation. I run an experiential learning class for masters called Simulated Translation Bureau, where basically the students form themselves into small model translation companies, and they do fictionalized jobs. We're not competing with with professional translators, but it, it's sort of jobs within the university, and it's to you know give give a trying to bridge the gap between theory and practice. And they can exchange jobs with other simulated translation bureau programs around Europe. And I also chair the MA in translation studies and the MSc in translation technology. Then for research, I I mostly look into ethics, sustainability and translation, looking at how translators interact with technology. And I have a, a few PhD students who work in those sort of topics and then for the engagement, my, my main role is I represent DCU as part of the European Masters in Translation Network. So that's a network of 81 different programs. It's administered by the Directorate General for Translation in the European Commission, and it's like a, a quality marker for translation programs. So within that, there's 10 of us who are on the board, and I run the technology working group. And it means that we have an opportunity to shape how technology, translation technology is taught in programs throughout Europe. So it, it's, it's quite interesting and it's a good space for information exchange. So that's more or less my role. It's good that there's a, there's a benchmark set there. So there won't be a major difference in, in quality, I suppose, between universities. So you said you chair the Masters in Translation and Translation Technology. Could you just give me a, a, bit, of a bit of a background on what those two courses are about? Sure. The MA in Translation Studies is the longest running translation masters in Ireland. It's been going since 1992 without stopping. It is a mix of translation practice, translation technology, audiovisual translation, localization, translation theory. What we're known for in DCU is is technology teaching. It's what our international reputation in research and in teaching is sort of based on. It's something that's that's always topical in translation, particularly at the moment. So so that that's what we're known for in DCU. And then about 10, 15 years ago, mostly led, I think, by Dorothy Kenny and and uh, Sharon O'Brien, two of my colleagues, they, they started this MSc in translation technology 
the difference there is that it just goes a little bit further into the technology thing, but also it's language agnostic. So whereas the others have translation practice modules in Japanese, Chinese, Spanish, German, French into English and English, Irish in the MSc, there are no translation practice modules that you have to take that are core. Instead, there are things like an introduction to programming, which used to be using Java has now moved to Python in um, collaboration with the School of Computing. And there's a, a module on um, artificial intelligence and information seeking. So it's a little bit more technical. And graduates of that program end up doing jobs to do with localization, localization engineering or, or as project managers, but more sort of technical jobs in the industry. But actually between both programs, relatively few people graduate and become translators. Some of them become freelancers. Some of them become subtitlers. But it's probably the minority and more of them will move into some sort of tertiary role in the the translation and localization industry. And you you did mention when we were talking before that the listeners might know what localization is. So I'll quickly explain what that is because it's a big deal in Ireland. Localization is when you're trying to look beyond just the words but localization encompasses trying to bridge cultural differences. So for example, if you're localizing a piece of software, you might want to think of what's appropriate in your target. We use the term locale because a country doesn't necessarily represent one language. So a language area basically is a locale and you're trying to make the software appropriate for there. It might involve changing imagery in a website. It might involve removing you know, red blood from a, a game to be sold in Germany, for example, because it's not legal to have red blood spilling around in a, in a game there. So localization encompasses more than just translation. It's sort of a, a superordinate term, although uh, it's not always agreed that it's superordinate. Translators get irritated when you say that. <laughs> so you said that you did you did my course, the Alts, which was went by a different name back then. How did you get into that or why did you get into that course? So you mentioned when we were talking earlier that you used to play in bands and so did I for years. And I was playing, I, I, I was working as, what was the job called? It was sort of a an internet engineer type job that I'd fallen into after the dot-com boom, uh, working for the company that has become ESAT BT. Uh, but I was, I was pretty unhappy in my job. I just, I, and I'd always sort of thought I wanted to go back to university. None of my immediate family went to third level university. My, my parents didn't, didn't even go to secondary school. So um, I was drumming for a singer-songwriter who was a professional translator and he could work anywhere. He could download his work. He would go on tour. He moved from Clifton, where he's from, to, to Dublin, to Boston, to San Francisco. And I just thought, this is miraculous. Like, how could you just, you could live anywhere and he could go on tour. He would download his work and do it on the train. So I was drumming for him and I just started asking questions about it. And he did our degree in the 90s. Uh, I So I went back as a 31-year-old and and, uh, and did, did our degree, did my year abroad in Japan, which was great. And then at the end of it, one of my classmates had already signed up to do a PhD. Uh, he's now a lecturer, Stephen Doherty is his name. He's a lecturer now in, in University of New South Wales. And I had never considered doing a PhD. I mean, doing an, an undergraduate degree was the, the, was the extent of my, my ambitions. But I thought, well, that sounds interesting. And I don't really know what else I might do. So I'll, I, I read through the, the, the details and it sounded interesting. So I did that, ended up staying on and doing a couple of po- postdoctoral uh, bits of work in, in Salus and then moved across to the School of Computing and uh, ended up being a researcher there for a few years, working on European projects, trying to be in, in computing. They, they, there were a lot of research projects 
that were very technical, but they wanted someone who would invo- who would be the go-between to translators who would organize the evaluations and basically would deal with humans because they didn't really like having to do that. They like, you know, being stuck behind a, a, a screen. So I, I did that for a few years and, and then the job came up in Salas. So I moved back across. So um, I can't remember exactly your question, but basically that how I got there. That's that's the path. So you got, you got there because of because of the band? More or less, yeah. And I, I chose Japanese because I we, my band put out a split single with a Japanese band and they stayed in our house. So I thought, well, doing a European language, you know, I went to I went to St. Gillian's German school and I didn't want to just have to re, re, relearn German. I mean, I was delighted to have an opportunity to relearn German and try and, you know, I hadn't used it for years. But doing something new for the novelty factor seemed seemed a good idea. So I picked Japanese for no reason more than that. Were you were you ever into like Japanese culture, like like anime or manga or anything like that? Not particularly. No, uh, loads of people in my class were, were big manga and anime fans. One of them was big into gaming as well. And he used to do a lot of fan subbing, a lot of sub, fan subtitling of, 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 uh, of Japanese anime. And uh, he ended up working for Nintendo and still does, as far as I know, in Germany. But uh, I, I was interested in Japanese music. But beyond that, not really. And what was it like to go back to college at 31? I was really nervous before I went back because I thought they'll be all young people and it'll be weird and they'll they'll not understand why I'm there. There were a few um, mature students, none of them as old as I was, but it was fine. The young people were great and I'm still friends with some of them. They they were a great bunch and and we were quite a we we were quite a tight-knit bunch in in Japanese and we we all got on remarkably well and uh, it was weird going to Japan because there is no real culture of mature students over there so I would I went over and all the people like so I I joined this this music circle over there and I I joined four bands they were all saying I can't believe you're you're 33 I'm not sure I've ever spoken to a 33 year old that isn't you know my parents (laughs) and uh, because they were all 19 so that was a little strange but it was fine and so you went to Japan for your year abroad. Did you notice anything like happen during the year or like, did you notice a change in your mindset? Like, I know you were obviously 33, but like, did anything change for you that year? The thing you notice as lecturer from mature students is that they're, they're really focused and they, they're not really interested in the social experience in university. They're interested in doing well and, and their grades on average probably are, are better. They tend to be very engaged. That's not always true. Some of them just think, I can't hack this and they struggle. But most of them are very focused. So for me, there wasn't a great change. I, I just relished the opportunity to live abroad. And I was already married. So myself, and my wife went over there. And she took a lot of pictures and taught some English. I tried to get to know as many Japanese people as possible. There was there was a gaijin is the the sometimes it's it, it's thought to be slightly pejorative. It's the term for foreigners that's used in Japan, shortening of gaikokujin. And there was an area where close to our lectures were in the university known as the gaijin benchi, where all the the foreigners would hang out. And I tried to avoid being there and instead got involved with the music circle. And But I thought it was the, the music circle was called the rock commune. I thought this is going to be really relaxed and we can just hang out. But instead, I arrived late for the first meeting, got a dressing down as soon as I came in, had to stand up and, and introduce myself to the group in my pidgin Japanese. And we, so we would, we would have these concerts every month where we'd all have to work together to build a stage. We'd be flyering every, every lunchtime and then meetings every Saturday at one o'clock. If you missed any of these, if you were late, if you were tardy in your work, 
you'd be told about it. So at the end of our three-day concerts that not many people came to, there would be the reflection period where all the audience would leave and we'd be left with the, our, our leader of, of the rock commune on the stage and the rest of us sitting down. And he would give a public dressing down to the people who hadn't pulled their weight. So uh, it was not a relaxed rock commune. But on the other hand, it was brilliant. And the people involved in it were great. And I'm still friends with a few of them as well. Like it's, you know, it, it was, they, they were aware that was the, it was the culture and, and it had been that since before their time. And they were just carrying it on without any, you know, they weren't trying to throw their weight around or anything. But do you think that like almost kind of sums up Japanese culture? Like everyone goes together or no one goes at all? Certainly there's a, there's a group mentality and there's, a, there's, a, 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 there's a, a, a will not to break the rules. Probably they'd be, Japanese people would be less inclined than Irish people to break the rules. But in general, I found no real culture shock going over there. That quite similarly to Japanese pe- or to Irish people, and you know, I've heard it about from people who go to a lot of different countries. That on the surface, people will be friendly, but actually trying to build a relationship with with someone is is quite tough. In Ireland or in Japan? In Ireland and in Japan. So I mean, I, I see it in myself. You know, I'm I'm outwardly friendly with people, but actually to try and build a friend relationship you know you know that there's a lot involved as uh, maybe i don't know if it's as you get older but i, I think it's it can be quite t- difficult to actually build a, a proper friend relationship with, with people when you move to ireland and similarly in japan you know it, it takes a bit of commitment to do it you know once you are friends with people then they're usually quite loyal so i think there's a lot made about that aspect of japanese culture but i, I don't think it's not it's necessarily that different to the experience of someone who might come to Ireland or I have a friend who moved to Geneva and he found the same thing. It's, it's interesting that you say there's no culture shock really because um, I was hit with a brick wall when I went to Spain. So you have your PhD, your, your research and lecturing. People who come out of out of your master's in translation or master's in translation technology, what sort of jobs or job prospects are in front of them? Well, there are lots of jobs available in translation and there's actually a a shortage of translators, but there's not so much a shortage of good jobs in translation. There are some really good jobs available. For example, particularly if you're an Irish language translator and if you have one other language, there's a job with very low tax that starts at around 72,000 per year waiting for you in the Directorate General for Translation. They're, they're crying out for Irish language translators. The reason for that is that Ireland, Irish was made an official language of the EU, but there was what's called a derogation on the status of Irish, which means that it didn't become a full language of the EU. That ends at the end of 2021. So they've been trying to ramp up their uh, Irish language translation every couple of years for the last few years, and they still can't meet the demand. I think you've and, just grabbed every single person and they're going to learn Irish. <laughs> well, like if, if someone wants to do our master's, the higher education authority, if, if you're doing Irish, will pay half your fees. Loads of our, our former, like our postdocs and, and former PhD students have ended up going over there. Our former master's students, one, one from two years ago is just about to move over. So, as, you know, this, it's still, there's an exacting standard to hit, but if you can hit that standard. Um, and there are a few different sort of institutional translation jobs available. So that, that's one place that a, a small number of our graduates go. We have a, a work placement program. It's difficult in the midst of a pandemic to get a work placement because everyone's working remotely. Last year, um, we had 10 people do the work placement. This year, our numbers in the master's programs have more than doubled 
for one reason or another. I think people want security. Like that's what I'm doing for 12 months and that's me sorted. I think that's part of it. There's there's a few people who came to the end of their degree and thought, well, I'm not going to be able to get a job now. So what else will I do? There's people who have been looking at our program from abroad and thought, when will I get a chance to do it? But now it's fully online. But also from the faculty, we're getting a lot more support in terms of advertising and communicating things out. So I think lots of factors are coming into it. So our our numbers have, have more than doubled this year. So lots of them want to do work placements and there won't be that many work placements for them. But for the people that have done work placements in the past, probably about half of them have ended up being kept on by the company. So there've been people who've worked for a machine translation company called Iconic Translation Machines in DCU. There are people who work for Transperfect in Barcelona and Berlin and Dublin. There's people who worked for, lot, yeah, lots of different companies who ended up being, being kept on. IOTA Language Technologies and Baggett Street have kept on people in the past. They're a good company to work for. And, and we try to have a lot of uh, interaction with industry. We have people coming in to give talks from industry just so that they get a feel for our, our students and they get familiar with each other. Maybe that they can, they can then contact them afterwards. But most of the students end up moving into, you know, I mentioned earlier, those sort of jobs around translation, like being a localization engineer or being a project manager. We have a good hit rate with, with people getting jobs. In the last couple of years, a couple of people have moved to London to become subtitlers. And then one of those has subsequently decided to go freelance. It's difficult to go freelance straight from the off without having that professional experience behind you. So a lot of people will tend to work for a while as uh, an in-house translator. And then your options are to either move up the food chain, move into a sort of managerial or administrative role, or to stay translating and then go freelance and try to control your own livelihood and hours and working conditions. I've noticed like ever since setting up my my uh, translation business last summer, it's a lot of networking. That's what I've noticed that you really need to be, you really need to have your your ear to the ground on what's happening, where the projects are coming from. And even if you just know one person who knows someone else who needs a particular language pair, that's that's you. So I think my advice to everyone would be get on LinkedIn, get that going. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. And w- what you've done is, is really interesting. I've seen a few people who have made that work as like a small number of graduates from a program. They There's a, a group of them they're based in the UK and they're mostly servicing, doing doing Spanish for both Spain and for Latin America because they're based in in the US and and in uh, and in the UK. But they've they've made a go of this sort of four person partnership. So uh, you know it, it's a good idea to you know to work together if you can. But it's tricky knowing who's good to work for. What seems to work best is building up a relationship with an a- agency that is interested in providing quality that isn't just interested in cost. So if your relationship is purely trans transactional and you've got a job just because you're providing a low cost service that means the next time they put out for a job they're just going to go for the the person that's providing the lowest price whereas building up a trust relationship is crucial and and in that way you know hopefully the job will keep going and having a you know relationship with either a project manager or a vendor manager within a, a company but also diversifying who you're working for because you know, you there might be a change of personnel in the company you're working with and the person you've built that relationship is gone or they just might unilaterally change how they work with people externally and you want to insulate yourself against that. So yeah. working in tandem means that, you know, hopefully you've, you've got more diversification and you're working with a number of different agencies and ideally some direct clients as well yeah. because 
those can be really beneficial and lucrative. They can be. So if you want to become a translator or a subtitler or anything in this field, what sort of characteristics do you have to have? Detailed and meticulous have really good command of your native language because in general you'll translate into what's usually known as your L1, your native language. So just being bilingual or functionally bilingual isn't really enough. Being able to write really clearly and express ideas in your native language is very important. Um, If you're working as a freelancer, being really organized and being willing to, you know, there's more, the amount of work that you do in that's actually translation is is probably a a small portion of the, the management, the financial management, looking after technical, the technical end of things and be willing to continue to learn as you go. Um, It's really important to be interested in lifelong learning and continue to adapt how you work as times move on and try to, you know, not be, not, not just decide, okay, that's, I'm not doing that, but actually have a, have a proper critical view of any new technologies or new work processes, but really just, I suppose that native ability and, and being detail oriented probably would be key. And then in terms of qualifications, a lot of companies and institutions do require a master's and coming out with, with from a degree, as you're saying you found, can be difficult. It makes it, it can be difficult to, to get in. But ultimately, if you can build up experience, that, that can bridge the gap. What's your opinion on niches? So there, there's some people who write about translation, active translators who will talk about different areas of the translation market. Uh, so they'll talk about the, the bulk market, often a little disparagingly. And that's the sort of the sort of translating, mate- the sort of material that where quality doesn't matter quite so much. So they, they tend to see the market as a continuum where at one end, you've got this sort of bulk market where it's just a case of getting it out there. So for a local context, if a company wants to fulfill a legal requirement or, or a, maybe a, some sort of branch of government wants to fulfill a legal requirement for providing an Irish language version of something, they mightn't care that much about the, about the quality, which is really unfortunate. And because there's a lack of Irish language translators, Irish language translation should really hit a, a good price point, but it doesn't always. Or, or maybe if they're for software documentation and they think, well, no one's really going to read this. So that, that will be at the bulk end. Then you've got a sort of a, a mid-priced uh, area where it might be to do with you know manuals, but it might, there might be maybe a greater risk there where if something's mistranslated, they might open themselves up to some sort of financial or legal risk. And maybe the content might be a bit more interesting. So the, the people I'm speaking about, so for example, people like Chris Durbin, um, who is a, a translator who writes a lot of blogs, writes a lot about translation. You can search for her work online. Kevin Hensel in the US, David Gemielity, who's based in, in, in Switzerland. Um, they would recommend specialization in the in, in what they would call the premium market, where uh, you can get a far better word rate and are, are more involved in crafting a message in the target language, particularly in business, marketing, financial transla- translation, uh, legal translation, where you might require a legal qualification to be able to, you know, to, to be able to produce the right content, you know, and so they, they want you to have a, a, that sort of legal background. And, you know, one of the questions you, you alluded to before we started was um, talking about what you might need come before to, you come into one of our master's programs. Do you need to have a linguistics or a, or a languages degree? And you don't. And actually it can be quite, quite useful to have a background in something else. We had someone who came in from, from Spain with a, a legal background. He had a, a law degree 
and then he came and did his our, our translation masters and that can be helpful for specialization after you graduate so getting a niche as you say is 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 really important and being willing to translate a little bit outside of that niche but not stepping into an area that you're unfamiliar with in that and in that case you just won't know the vernacular at that area and you won't be able to do as good a job and you won't represent yourself as well. So specialization and building a reputation in in that speciality would be a real recommendation of those sort of self-styled premium market translators, as well as having direct clients. If anyone wants to find out more about the master's programs, how can they find out? If you go to our, both programs have, have a website. If you just search for SALIS, which is our, our school, the School of Applied Language and Intercultural Studies. So SALIS and MA will bring you to suggestions for our master's in translation studies and also the master's in refugee integration. You know, so you just click on one or other. And, and SALIS and MSC will bring you to the, the MSC in translation technology. Thanks so much for talking to me, Joss. You're more than welcome. Thanks for much ronan good to talk to you thanks for listening to this episode of ronan talks languages be sure to follow me on instagram ronan talks languages podcast for more information